This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover on the service. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch, and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. I am Michael Snydell, and you are listening to Intermission, Episode 9. This episode is about Kelly Reichert's uh, Certain Women. Um, Intermission is a spinoff podcast from the Film Stage Show. Uh, You might have heard my voice on the Film Stage Show with uh, a few other uh, chairs, That's a weekly podcast, and this is also a weekly podcast, but in this case, this is a one-on-one where a guest picks one film that, uh, one art house, foreign, or experimental film that is streaming on a service, and we talk about it at length. Uh, Today's film, Certain Women, is available on uh, the Criterion channel. And is available to rent on uh, Apple TV and Vudu. Um, and so, uh, first, I'd like to introduce my guest, uh, who is Orla Smith from Seventh Row. Orla, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Uh, as you said, my name is Orla. Uh, I write for Seventh Row. And we will get into the fact that I wrote a book about Kelly Reichert, but also I just love this film a lot. And I'm also on my own podcast, which is a seventh row podcast, where I'm usually surrounded by several people. It's been intimidating that I have to have enough thoughts to support a conversation on my own here, but I will try. I was going to say, if anyone (laughs) is able to have enough thoughts to to talk about certain women, it might be one of the people who... (laughs) Who wrote the book about uh, Riker? <laughs> um, but first, I want to give my thanks uh, to my sponsor, uh, Mubi, which is the online streaming cinema. Uh, Mubi has a new film every day, and today's film is Raj Kapoor's Awara. As Mubi describes it, Raj Kapoor's watershed film belongs to the golden age of Hindi cinema, combining multiple genres and serving as a social critique of class in newly independent India. A milestone in introducing global audiences to Bollywood, the film also launched Kapoor's illustrious Chaplin-esque character. Uh, That's one of a number of films that's going to be in a journey into Indian cinema, uh, collection that is on Mubi, and you can also look at their expansive library, which also includes their Spotlight in India, which includes films from Satyajit Ray uh, and Mani Calls Devita, which I've heard wonderful things about. If you would like to try a trial of Mubi for 30 days, 
you can go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. And now we can uh, get into the episode at hand, which is, again, uh, about the aforementioned uh, Certain Women from 2016, where it premiered at Sundance, uh, to um, quite a bit of acclaim. Um, Similar to the rest of uh, Reichert's body of work, but uh, Certain Women was actually uh, her most successful film to date and is also uh, possibly the most uh, star-studded, though that's obviously Mm -hmm. not relevant despite having a number of, uh, I I guess you could say, repertory actors in people like Mm -hmm. Michelle Williams, uh, uh, James LaGrosse, and and others. Um, Uh, Yeah. I, I'm trying to think if there are any is other Rene Aubergenois. Yes, yes, yes. He he. That was his first film that he was in with her. But he was also in First Cow, and then Lily Gladstone is also in First Cow. So there's a couple people who started becoming repertory actors in certain women. Well, well, that is good to hear that Gladstone is in First Cow, but she should be in everything. But yes. that's another matter entirely. <laughs> So kind of to get started after I've given brief context, Orla, why did you pick this um, this specific Kelly Reichert film to talk about? And of, of course, I, I know this is uh, probably a large question, but yes. what was your general interest in writing about her films as a, as a body of work? Okay, well, that's difficult to know whether to work backwards or forwards, but... Um, <laughs> I'll give it a try. I think I'll start with how I was introduced to Kelly Reichardt, which I think probably was this film, even though it wasn't the first of her films that I saw. But I remember becoming, I, I was very like much following film culture at the time. And I, but I kind of like bypassed the fact that it premiered at Sundance or I didn't kind of like pay any attention to it then. And I, it came into my attention at TIFF when it kind of built up a bit more steam. And I remember hearing about it and like being convinced that this was a film that I was going to like, even though I hadn't seen any of her films yet. So I went back and I watched Wendy and Lucy and I loved Wendy and Lucy. And I think Wendy and Lucy is probably the best starting point for anyone with her films. Like it's the one I've had the most success showing to people if they hadn't heard of Reichardt or seen any of her films before. Um, And then I think it came out, I I waited ages for it to come out in the UK because notoriously films take a long time to come out here, especially indie films. Um, But it came out the next March here. And uh, I I was just looking at my letterbox, uh, which is a very handy tool uh, for things like this. And it seems like I watched Night Moves just a few days before I saw Certain Women. Um, and I did not like it, uh, as many people find with Night Moves for the first time. Um, <laughs> but then I went and I watched Certain Women, and I, I watched it at uh, the opening night in London at a Q&A with Kelly Reichardt, which shows you how convinced I was that this was going to be a me movie. And I watched <laughs> it, and and I I... I liked it, but I wasn't as blown away by it as I wanted to be. Um, cut to... About six months later, I was asked to be on, like, some podcast. 
uh, and pick a movie to talk about, which is very reminiscent of today. And I was like, you know that movie, Certain Women, I ought to give it another try. So I was like, I'll chat about that for my segment. And I watched it again, and it was obviously a very different experience because this time it was on my laptop rather than on a massive screen in the BFI. And I really just like head over heels, fell in love with it the second time I watched it. And I think that maybe this is something we can talk about later, but um, I feel like this is a film that is like particularly suited to being watched on a small screen, like in a dark room with your headphones on, because it's a film about loneliness. And I think that some films that are about kind of isolation really gain something when you're in that isolated context. But long story short, I loved the movie. It became kind of a movie that I would let myself watch one time a year so that I didn't ruin it for, my, it for myself. And then um, I also had a rule that I would never watch it with anyone because it would kind of ruin the sanctity of that experience. And, you know, when I watch things with people, I'm always anxious about what they're going to think. Um, I broke that rule this year. I showed it to my boyfriend uh, who liked it, but... I, I still felt like the experience wasn't as special as watching it on your own. Um, because Always again, a scary I feel like, thing, showing a partner right. a film you love. <laughs> yep. Um, but we put it, on 7th row, we put it number two on our top 50 of the decade list last year. Basically, I run 7th row with Alex Heaney, and the way we worked it was, like, we kind of, we put that list together in collaboration, so we kind of just discussed it, and then the 50 came from that. But the number one and number two were both films that we both love, but number one was Alex's favourite film of the decade, also August 31st. And then I got to pick number two, which was Certain Women. Um, and then, cut to now, we are, well, we've just released a book about Kelly Rykup's films, which is something that came about about a year ago. Basically, Seventh Row, we publish an ebook about a filmmaker or a topic every three months. And we've done ebooks about Celine Sayama. We've done them about Mike Lee, um, about Joanna Hogg. And I think we, I mean, actually, the Kelly Reichardt book was one of the first ones we planned to do. And we planned to do it before First Cow came out. Um, but then we ended up postponing it to the release of First Cow. So we've been working on this for a year. And uh, I had never really written about certain women. And I had, um, obviously, a, a deep desire to write about why I love the film so much and that is part of the book but um when First Cow came out or tried to come out um we started work on this book and it's finally done and it's like a look at her whole career um but it does have particular focus on First Cow and certain women because there are essays about each of her films there are interviews with Rykart herself there are interviews with her creative team like her cinematographer production designer, costume designer, her actors, we interviewed Lily Gladstone, or I did. And um, then there's a case study on certain women and a case study on First Cow. So in the certain women case study, um, there's Alex's initial interview with Kelly Ripet from back in 2016. And then there is an interview that I did with the costume designer of the film. And then the essay that I chose to write about, write about certain women might seem strange because you'd think with a film I love so much, I'd want to kind of look at a broader aspect of it. But I wrote about the costumes because I think that the 
costumes in the film are so subtly wonderful um, in a way that people don't give it credit for. The costume designer April Napier did like Lady Bird and Booksmart and she does a lot of contemporary costumes that are really brilliant and character revealing um, and that don't really get the same credit like a period costume would. It is interesting that you pinpointed this as, as a starting point and and because it is, I, I, I think what is a little bit unusual about it as a starting point is it's a, <laughs> it's at once her structure in miniatures, but it's mm. also as an anthology film, an entirely different emotional experience. But I do think, I, I guess my first question is like, you know, you already said that you picked it as the second film of the decade for the seventh row list. Uh, did you, uh, you know, whether before writing the book or after writing the book, have you had um, any different appreciation for the other two films uh, this decade, Meeks Cutoff or Night Moves, even though you said you had a distaste for Night Moves? <laughs> um, definitely. Uh, so I feel like all of her films really do better on the second watch. Um, and I think I, I found that for most of them, but particularly I found that with certain women, night moves and makes cut off. Uh, and interesting, I think like I think certain women in first cow are on a different stratosphere above her other films. I think they're like mm. all of them are, are kind of perfect to me. I love them all, but I think she's kind of been layering on the complexities. Um, as she's gone on further in her career. And I think Night Moves and Meeks Cutoff are interesting, um, are, are very interesting like, like examples of how a film can improve on rewatch. I know that not everyone finds that with Meeks Cutoff, but I actually, once I'd seen all of her films once round, that was my least favourite of her films. And mm. I know it's a lot of people's favourite, but I it really didn't connect with me the first time. And I actually only rewatched it a couple of weeks ago after going kind of going through the processes of thinking about it for this book and we have like a really really wonderful essay on the film from a writer called Lindsay Pugh uh, who really kind of excavated what's so great about it and um, then watching it again I just really fell in love with it um, and Night Moves is an interesting case because almost every single person I talked to didn't like that film the first time <laughs> around including me um, but I think what it is, is that um, we're trained to go into films like that, like thrillers like that, and to take the characters seriously in what they're doing. And Alex was saying to me that every time she watches it, Night Moves gets funnier to her because you realise that the characters have no idea what they're doing and it becomes almost like a comedy, a very dark comedy, about how they really think they're doing something serious and they think that they're taking all the appropriate steps to blowing up this dam, and then they're pro proven in the second half of the film to have like really not thought it through at all. And I think you gain a new understanding of the characters because that film is really a film in two parts. When you watch the first part again the second time, you have a deeper understanding of what the characters are actually doing and what they don't realise about themselves. Um, sure. And I think... That's a great example of, yeah, a film of hers that, because her films are so layered in ways that are so subtle, so you might not notice them initially, um, they really reward thinking about and, and re-watching. I mean, did, did you get to watch it again? 
yes, I, I did. <laughs> I, I actually revisited it uh, last night, and um, yeah, I liked it significantly more. Um, I, I'm mm. not, I'm not totally sure if I'm on board with it being a dark comedy, though I, I think <laughs> that Eisenberg, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character in that does have a certain pathetic quality that, um, you know, is is very quintessentially Jesse Eisenberg, but also feels a little more, a little more thoughtful. Like, I, I, the, I mm. like his version of an outsider, you know, whether, you know, he comes to the trailer and, and, and you know, uh, finds out that, you know, Fanning and Sarsgaard are together in it, or the scene where they stop for the deer and he realizes that she's, uh, yeah, I believe it's a deer. Yeah, realizes that she's pregnant and, uh, you know, pushes her down this, uh, you know, down this hill. And, and I, I think I just found a certain, um, a certain really, you know, gender dynamics are, are something that I would say are, is very inherent to so many of Reichert's films, you, you know, mm. um, you know, a certain presumptuousness that uh, characters have. Um, you know, I maybe Old Joy might be the one exception um, from my memory, but, you know, I'd say River of Grass, you know, which, uh, which, you know, is probably the only one like Night Moves that seems to harken back to a, you know, a genre structure. Like River of Grass is, is kind of like, to be reductive, it's, you know, kind of a Badlands thing. And then Night Moves, mm. you know, is a very, very uh, familiar, like, noir archetype in, in terms of someone has this grand plan, of course, something goes wrong that, you know, uh, leads to, you know, this other type of collision course. But Well, I, I you know, think... First Cow is a heist movie, too. Is it really? Oh, see. I mean, it's it's um it's it's funny because it's it's technically a heist movie, but unlike Night Moves, it doesn't like Night Moves is made to feel like a, a noir heist movie, whereas sure. First Cow is technically a heist movie if you think about it, but it doesn't feel like that because the emphasis isn't on the crime. Um, it's like they're, they're stealing milk from a cow um, that is not their cow, and they're making delicious cookies out of it. <laughs> See, I, I must I must admit to my listeners uh, now that I was not able to see First Cow. I don't mean to uh, belabor Night Moves, but I, I will say that I definitely had a different reaction to it. And I guess what I'd say to transition a little bit into certain women is I think Night Moves is a kind of canny prediction uh, of where certain women goes. In the sense mm. of, you know, I, I had this feeling a few years ago when I uh, interviewed I, I interviewed Kelly Riker right before certain women for a uh, publication that no longer exists, unfortunately. But I, I had the realization then that, you know, as much as the common sentiment around her is this certain emphasis on quiet and, you know, uh, this solitude and this arduous process, which I think are all elements of her work, I think there's, um, you know, also a certain, a certain violence she's trying to get at, a certain mm. disruption. And um, I think Night Moves, you know, I was having this conversation a little bit earlier, and I'm sure they thought I was a little bit strange in suggesting this, <laughs> but um, I think there's almost a catharsis 
in night moves that some of her other films don't allow. I will not spoil night moves, but I will say that the where it ends up is not your common <laughs> you're not your common description of, of catharsis. Um, I mean, catharsis is an interesting word to use, and actually, I have prevailing theories about the idea of catharsis in her work. Um, and I think the I, I I don't see Night Moves as a film with catharsis. I think the the only film of hers that ends with any kind of catharsis is River of Grass. Um, okay. And I think that the idea of not giving the audience catharsis is kind of like other than that film, the thing that unites most of her work. Yeah. No, but, I mean, I... yeah. I mean, that's I I, I wrote a, a a big essay that was very difficult to put together um, towards the beginning of the book that is kind of like the title essay of the book. Um, and that is sort of the thesis of it, I think. And that's kind of a, an overall arching thesis of our book is the idea that that um, her films, I don't think that they're nihilistic, but I mm. also don't think that they offer um, a, a lasting kind of like optimism hopeful ending yeah and i i very much agree that catharsis and resolution are, are two different uh, things and you know right this is obviously not a film that has a a typical resolution and if i was going to talk about catharsis in relation to certain women i would you know you could say that there is a there is a minute catharsis at least in <laughs> you know, the centerpiece sequence with, uh, with Stuart and Gladstone. But before, you know, that's not reciprocated feels the wrong word, but I guess it platonically <laughs> describes mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, but I, I think that again, there is something in the violence, the literal violence in night moves that feels concrete in a way that a lot of her films don't uh, allow again uh, i guess i'd go back to that language Mm. and i think you're absolutely right that river of grass has resolution and i think you're also right that catharsis is kind of a difficult (laughs) word to unpack yeah i mean uh, one interesting thing that i jump off there is that um and this is is an idea of alex's um but we, we did split the the book like the main portion of the book into two sections, which is her films about women and her films about men, which is not to say that they like are two completely separate things entirely, but um, because we, she's made so many films, we had to split it some way, and that felt like an interesting divider because her view of sort of male relationships and then the ways in which women navigate the world are very interesting. And um, the idea of violence is interesting because Alex's idea was that her films about men are often about like the violence, the unspoken violence in male relationships. And that's very much what Old Joy is about because there's this sort of like a lot that goes unspoken between the two men and it feels very kind of like subtly. I mean, violent is is, is a strong word to use, but like subtly emotionally sure. violent and very much in Night Moves as well. Like Jesse Eisenberg's social awkwardness is, is part of what becomes more funny about the film the more <laughs> times you watch it. Um, but there's such like a, a subtle violence 
and between him and Peter Sarsgaard's character in the film, even before any actual violence happens. And that's what nice about First Cow is that it's kind of about like a, a very sweet relationship. And I think a lot of her films are about sort of connections that people are trying to make happen that don't totally happen. So it's nice that she's kind of finally made a film about about people getting along. Um, Certain women is definitely not that, I don't think. There is such an interesting tension here between main characters and institutions and then main characters and mm. individuals. Um, you yeah. know, Wendy and Lucy very much is about someone who, uh, excuse me, d doesn't have, you know, uh, money is a major, uh, is a major issue in that film. You know, she has to sleep in her car and now she's looking for her dog. Like uh, everything is essential. Everything is is something um, you know that she can't lose beyond the fact that it's an mm. it's an animal. Um, and and I do think you know something like Meek's cut off, you know, there that almost becomes cosmic instead of <laughs> institutional. Mm. In that way, how political her films are is also it maybe not overlooked, but mm. kind of uh, kind of made uh, kind of relegated below you know, this obsession with quiet and, and you know, even yeah. that is that this wild contradiction because all of these expansive places, whether you're talking about Billings, Montana, or the, no the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest, mm -hmm. they're huge expanses that nonetheless box all the characters in. Right. But I mean, her character, her characters are quiet, but she has said on multiple occasions that her filmmaking is like driven by like anger and, and she's a very political filmmaker in in and she's her her perspective is is very angry at, at the system and at the way people operate in the system and the way the system treats people so so you're right people people do just sort of like slap the label quiet on her films and leave it at that but there's so much going on in them and her perspective is so strong I think we're starting to talk about her body of work too much. And yes, if it's yep. um, if it's not clear by now, or Orla and I deeply love Rickard's films. But I, yeah. I do want to well maybe let's just go segment by segment. So the the first segment uh for listeners. Well actually could oh, could, could we could I ask first what your favorite segment is? Yes. So my favorite segment is not surprising. It is the <laughs> Gladstone and Stewart. One and uh, my least favorite on first watch was the first segment because I thought it went oh. slightly too long. Uh, I never had a problem with the Michelle Williams uh, segment, which some people interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm finding out that's a, a more un, uh, maybe not unpopular <laughs> but surprising <laughs> opinion uh, than I thought. Um, yeah, no, I think the Michelle Williams one is is pretty much. Uh, perfect <laughs> um yeah I, yeah I, I i thought the first one on um first watch is is too long it's kind of hard to evaluate you know uh watches from years ago because you're obviously coloring them <laughs> with new thoughts mm -hmm. but I, I guess what i would say is that um it, like it is it is very quintessentially a record in not only it's staging, but also it's uh, exceptional acting. I think Jared Hess and Laura Dern are mm. just uh, fantastic in that. And um, Laura Dern is like, well, she's one of our greats in general. I, I could talk mm. about Laura Dern for a while, honestly. 
Um, but I think she is uniquely great at dealing with irritants. Dealing... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's very good at being frustrated. And she does it, um, but I've I thought again, uh, and I thought about this in my first view and this view, that this film, in a way, could be called, uh, in quotation marks, difficult women. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. in a way, these, these uh, you know, I, I suppose three segments are, are three sets of characters are very mm. emblematic of this certain resistant, uh, excuse me, gender archetypes that, that we're used to, you know, whether it's Michelle Williams, who's more detached and disconnected, but also has this poise that frightens some people, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whether you have Kristen Stewart, who is, I mean, she's 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 in a new job and she has a lot of anxiety that surrounds that because she feels like she's not professional or kind of experienced enough to be in this job, which is obviously for her, especially as a lawyer, a very gendered thing because she will be working with a lot of men who undermine her in her work. And you can see that anxiety in her performance. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. But yeah, I guess what I just say about Dern and Harris, I thought were fantastic the first time, but there was something about that arc, which it is very much a, a very literal arc in a way that Reichert's films don't often follow. And yeah, I just thought it went slightly too long when it hits the hostage situation. But, you know, it it really does hammer home so many of those gender things that she's going to explore and mm. push back against in a, in a pretty uh, strong and um, satisfying seems too strong <laughs> for mm. how these characters are left in the lurch sometimes. But um, right. yeah, those are kind of my opening statements about the, the first segments. Well, my diplomatic answer to the, what is your favorite segment <laughs> uh, question is, is all of them because they make a cohesive whole. But um, my my controversial answer, because I like like to be controversial about this, is is Jeez. that the first one is my favorite. Um, okay. But I think I think they're all equally good, really. But um, the the third one is is most people's favorites because it's the most like traditionally cinematic. Um, because it's an unrequited love story, sort of, and it inspires a lot of emotion because of that in people. So it's the one that I think is just naturally more tailored to being people's favourites. Although I think that um, sort of like the, the finding nuance in mundanity thing is what I love about Reichardt so much. And I, I love that about the first segment and I love Laura Dern's character. And I think it's like stealthily, maybe my favorite Laura Dern performance because it's, she's just, like you said, she's so good at being frustrated. And there's a scene that I love, um, which is like maybe my favorite scene in the movie, although it's really hard to say that. Um, which is the scene where she's in a car with Jared Harris and they're just driving along and he's like complaining, complaining and saying he's going to like get a machine gun and kill everybody. And she's just tired of his shit. And and he's so funny in this film as well. Um, But, um, and then 
she kind of tells him to shut up and then he agrees and then she puts on some like melancholy country music and you see the two different ways that they deal with emotion as characters because they're driving along and the camera is on Laura Dern's face and she's sort of like taking in the melancholy music and internalizing it and you can see that she's sort of like feeling very weary and melancholy but she doesn't show it and then you cut to Jared Harris who's just crying like sobbing relentlessly because he cannot like help but I mean his whole character is he can't help but just invading her space the whole time he literally gets in his her car uninvited um and then and creates a hostage situation and that hostage scene is sort of like Rikart in a nutshell it's like how do you make a hostage scene completely feel completely mundane as if it's just another day at work um and and actually I've, I've heard her say that she doesn't like character arcs before and I, sure. I'm, I'm curious to, to ask you about that because I, I don't feel like I feel like out of all our characters especially Laura Dern's character is is one of them who has like the least of an arc as a character because she she feels like of the three women in the film she's the oldest and she feels the most resigned to her situation so I think I mean Reichardt makes films about ordinary people where other people tend to make films about like extraordinary people rising above their circumstances, which she is not about, which is why I feel like she'll never make a biopic because that's just not something she's interested in. She's not interested in people like doing things out of the ordinary. And Laura Dern's character is sort of a character who has experienced probably like decades of misogyny at her job and she's kind of been ground down she's almost like a future version of Kristen Stewart's character who who isn't as idealistic and um maybe in a more conventional film you'd have this uh lawyer and client relationship where he's been screwed over by the system like he you feel sorry for him because like he's struggling but and she like she's not a lawyer character who's gonna like stand up for the little man and like really champion him because she knows that the system doesn't work that way and she knows that the system doesn't favor people and the system isn't empathetic so she just does her job and she tells him you know what's going on and she's very straight with him and then even in that hostage scene she just does her job and she does what she's supposed to and because she's kind of resigned to the fact that she shouldn't hope for anything more. And um, I think that's what's very special about the film as a triptych, because we see three different women and they get younger as we go along. So they're at kind of different stages of having their having their hope crushed <laughs> under the boot of life. I, I think my response would be that there is... I think it's both a narrative and a character arc that is uh, is is a lot more clean is maybe the word mm-hmm. I'd use for that first section. Um, and you are right that it is still very much about the gender distinctions. We we haven't talked about the fact when she is called in. There's no conversation whatsoever. There's no there's mm-hmm. no um, you know asking if she would be willing to do this. You know this. Uh, 
this horrifying gambit. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> he just hands her the bulletproof vest. And I love that little gesture that she takes the scarf off. Mm. <laughs> um, but I, I, I guess what I'd again say there is, you know, I'd go back to that word that I, I mentioned earlier, which was resolution. And it, it is true that she is, you know, it, it is a business as usual situation when she finally leaves the building and, um, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, betray feels like a weird word there, <laughs> but, mm. you know, tells them that he left out the, out the back. Um, she, she doesn't I, indulge him. No, no. And you are right that it is, she still was definitely ground under these certain gender assumptions, but I still think that there is... It's, it, it, I guess it's not as unstable uh, an mm. ending as, as so much of Reichert in general has. I, I mean, yeah. whether you even want to speak about the word ambiguity, which I think becomes oddly an end to itself in a way. Mm. Um, I, I think that that story, at least, as much as it comes back in the wraparound, she really has kind of extra, extra, excuse me, extricated herself from that situation from having to right. deal with it. Like she, with agency, decides to go visit him at the jail. And yeah, she received a letter, but it's a more passive aggression than this person literally coming into her office and trying to continually ingratiate himself. So I think I think mm. that's more my argument, if that makes a little more sense. Yeah, I think it's probably the most hopeful ending of the three because I feel like you're right that it her story ends on more stable ground in the sense that I feel like we have a good enough idea of what that character's future is um and her future in the relationship with Jared Harris's character it seems I I like the fact that they they end that they do kind of manage to connect at the end in the way that the other characters struggle with even if it's kind of awkward and tenuous. Um, but that last scene with them is, is quite sweet, and I, especially because it's on her terms now and he's not kind of invading her space, like you said. Um, so I, I think we leave her in the best place of the three, definitely. Yeah, uh, so it, it, should be, it should be noted before we go into the second segment that uh, the first segment begins with Laura Dern having an affair with uh, James LeGrosse's character, uh, whose mm. name is uh, is Ryan. Uh, Laura Dern is, of, co- of course, just called Laura. <laughs> you can't, you can't mm-hmm. change Laura Dern's name. Um, of course. But uh, moving into the second segment, uh, James LeGrosse's character returns, and he is with his wife, and um, and their and their child uh, together. Um, mm. it, it's kind of interesting though because I have to admit uh, their initial dynamic gives the sense that she's like a stepmom or something, and it's almost mm-hmm. more crushing that it doesn't seem to be the case that she is fully her mom. Like it, it is this, um, like it's just clear that uh, James LeGrosse and their daughter just gets along better mm. uh, than Michelle uh, Williams um, does. But I, w- what are kind of your initial thoughts about that second segment? 
Um, well, I, I really love the opening to the segment, first of all. It's this, like, beautiful silence se- sequence where she's in full running gear, but she's not running. She's just smoking because she's pretended to go running so that she could secretly <laughs> go smoke. Um, so you get this little, like, pri- private um, look into her, into real life before we have to um, witness her a really, really strained relationship with her family. And I think it is really, like... It's so frustrating to see that kind of very fraught teenage relationship that the daughter has with her mother. Um, And you sense that it's definitely partly because James LeGros' character gets to be like the fun parent, whereas Mm -hmm. Michelle Williams' character is a parent who has to tell her, has to ask if she's brushed her teeth or not. Um, And uh, I, I think that it's you can trace the strange relationship between her and her daughter to the lack of respect, the subtle lack of respect that her husband has for her. I mean, we already know that he's having an affair, but also he kind of undermines her when she's bartering for her sandstone. And again, he he lets himself take that, that cool parent role and kind of throwing her under the bus in the process. And I, what I love about this segment so much is that it's, it takes like the nagging mother archetype and like humanizes her and shows us why people view her that way. Um, and I feel like I've really not seen that done very much at all in, in films. I can't think of many other examples of films that do that. Um, and obviously Michelle Williams acts it so beautifully. I mean, all the performances in this film are so good. Uh, and I, I just love to describe the plot of this segment to people because it's just a woman buys some stone <laughs> uh, she thinks for a second that she might not get the stone then she gets the stone um but the the nuance of it is in like the subtlest of glances and the way the people interact and the way she's i mean i think the subtext of this section is that she's unhappy she's from the city and she wants to settle her family down in rural Montana. And the subtext is that she's kind of in this, she's stuck in this unhappy family unit where neither her husband or her daughter respects her. And she is, um, she is looking for solutions to that in the wrong place by thinking maybe my family, maybe I can bring my family together by building a house not realizing that that's just going to like box her in further with these people that she's not getting along with. So she's, she's looking to buy a house when she should probably be looking at like family therapy maybe (laughs) and like talking through their problems, which I think is a thing, a thing with a lot of Reichardt characters. They, they look to like grander solutions to their problems or at least like the more privileged characters uh, like uh, Mark and Old Joy is like, oh, yeah. oh, I'm having problems. I'm having problems with my wife. I'm gonna go to the woods for the weekend, <laughs> um, which is very much the. Oh, and then like Jesse Eisenberg's character in Night Moves is sort of like, I'm bored. I'm gonna blow up a dam. Um, so I feel like um, that that is definitely a theme in her films. People looking in the wrong place for solutions to. Uh, a feeling of like unrest that is isn't doesn't have simple solutions, and that's there's a good example of that in this segment. Um, and yeah, I just I, I love 
I, I love the sequence where she barters for the sandstone and the way Rykart just like knows exactly when to cut between the three participants there to show like the shady looks Michelle Williams and James Legault share. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's really interesting. You mentioned Eisenberg because I'm just, uh, I, I'm just thinking again about, you are absolutely right that these people look for, solutions in, in something. But I, I think what's interesting is they're not really like clueless. They're very articulate people. They're, mm. they're people who understand uh, much about the world and not necessarily even in an, op- uh, excuse me, an obvious relationship, like, you know, street smart or book smart. So, like, you know, uh, Dakota Fanning, for instance, in, in Night Moves is, you know, uh, they pin her as the rich girl, but she's also like, able to negotiate in that wonderful way in the office with James Legros, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's or, actually funny. We, we noticed that the, the shirt James Legros wears in Night Moves in his one scene and the shirt he wears in Certain Women are like the exact same shirt, but the two films had different costume designers. And I asked the costume designer <laughs> of Certain Women how that happened and she had no idea, but she found it very funny. Oh, that's amazing. But, but yes, I... I, I do think as well, you know, to go back to that certain, you know, there's there's something really interesting too in the fact that Gina, Michelle Williams' character, you know, to speak even more directly to that, you know, nagging wife archetype is she has that appearance of like inaccessibility. Like she mm. has, and I think that, um, I, I love the the delivery between James LaGrosse and the um, the daughter who I can't seem to find on IMDb unfortunately. Mm. Um, but either way, their their daughter's their daughter's very very good as kind of a moody mm-hmm. teen. But but either way, I, I love this line where um, the daughter you know kind of asks, "Is she sick?" And he says, "No, she isn't sick. Just be nice." To her. <laughs> And it's, it's again, it's again a little bit pushing back on this obvious idea of him being a cheating husband. And I think you see that a little bit in the the wraparound as well, too, Mm. which, you know, is her trying to repair the relationship and him joking around with like, you know, wonderful. Thank you so much for making these. Can you get Mm -hmm. me a beer as a joke? Like it's, it's that thing where he's like, He's not monstrous, but he's also mm-hmm. clearly not aware. And then when you combine that with, like, I kind of love how Albert is, like, you know, he he is, he might not have dementia, but he kind of swerves in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only in a way that he'll, like, very specifically only talk to Ryan, like mm. that is there, but it's not like dominant in the way you expect. Right, yeah. But there is still obviously like a very antique sensibility to him, like as a, sorry to Albert Albert's character, like uh, in general, like it. it and I, I, and then the final kind of addition to that is I love that James Legros his characterization of her wanting to build this house and getting the limestone um, when she's not in earshot is, is something along the lines of, Oh, you know, she wants it to be 
authentic is maybe the word yeah. they use. Authentic. But either way, like, that's so, so kind of, like, damningly illustrates that country versus city, like, mm. condescension in an opposite way than you'd expect, <laughs> actually. Yeah. No, yeah, and, and I think Rene Aubergenois is, is is also so good in this. I think as much as the, the four central women are amazing, um, the the supporting supporting cast in the film is also just, like, so great. I think Jared Harris and, and him give both two of, like, my favourite supporting performances of that year. And it's a lot in... Well, especially for him, it's in those, like, quiet but very charged stares. And to speak about the ephemeral connections again, I think um, that is a theme that runs through these three stories. And with Laura Dunn's character, it's between her and Jared Harris. And in this story, I think it's between uh, Gina and, and Albert in that mm. as she's... I mean, their relationship is sort of, like towing this weird line where she's kind of exploiting him and you can, I mean, he, he kind of was going to give the sandstone away as well, but she's pushing him. So it's this weird, like partial predatory relationship. But at the end when they leave and they have that kind of bird call conversation, it's this very, very brief moment of like two people just slightly connecting and then leaving and not really understanding if that was a connection at all. And then one of the last images is her looking at him through the window and waving and not being quite sure whether he even saw. Um, so that's probably the briefest of the ephemeral connections in the film. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I, I so do you do you see that ephemeral connection to an outlier to? patriarchal views or something not necessarily so defined by like a a a code of of albert i'm not sure i think it's probably i mean in in reichardt style um less defined and it's something that the two characters don't quite understand either but you get the sense that that albert is i mean he's a more marginalized character than gina for example he's less wealthy than her and he you get the sense that he's very lonely living in this house alone um and he doesn't get to talk to people very much and so this moment where she kind of reciprocates him in conversation seems to understand him in a way that a lot of people don't make the effort to is is this thing that just kind of like hangs in the air between them but because of the nature of their relationship and because of the fact that she's not a person who's prepared to like you know really invest in her relationship with him um Mm. in a meaningful way it's something that can only last like a second yeah that that is that is really interesting this idea of investing in a relationship because it, it is it is something like kind of unfortunately familiar in the sense that you you know certain people where you know they're trying to be kind but they're just seen as aloof or seen in a way you know that they maybe not were rejected but they're just not seen as friendly despite their their mm-hmm. best efforts and there's a there's again kind of an interesting combination there and i think it's i think it's odd that 
or it's not necessarily odd, but uh, I mean, Michelle Williams is just a fabulous actress and everything, but so many directors have, have used that in, in such a, such an interesting way, you know, from, um, uh, is Sarah, Sarah Polly, uh, mm. oh no, what am I Take this waltz? Yes, take this waltz. Thank you, Orla. Um, uh, yeah, Canadian whether it's... film. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah she needs to make another movie. Um, yes, she does. Whether it's take this waltz or Blue Valentine or, you know, even Manchester by the Sea in her short scene. But I, I think that Reichert here especially is able to emphasize a certain rigidity without also, like, giving into a sexism? Does, does that make any sense? Right, yeah. I mean, I think what it is is that, um, I mean, this film is full of characters who who keep missing connections or not being able to fully form connections with other people because of other stresses in their life. And I think that we understand with all three characters, and especially her character, that um, she kind of one of the reasons she doesn't have the emotional energy to form a more meaningful relationship with someone like Albert is because there's so much strain put on her by her relationship with her daughter and her relationship with her husband and the way that she's in some way fighting against sexism in her relationship with her husband and how that reflects onto her daughter and in other aspects of her life. And you can see that with Laura Dunn's character and how um, the weariness of her job limits her ability to connect with others. And that's particularly pertinent in Kristen Stewart's character. She's just so tired because she's driving back and forth in the middle of the night that she almost doesn't notice that the rancher is, is trying to talk to her. I do want to ask, do you think um, part of the reason that you connected Oh, I guess we're going back to Connected. Connected so <laughs> deeply w- with this film was in part that anthology structure, being able to see this pattern expressed in, in different ways. Mm, I think that it is, um, I think it's just kind of like a culmination of everything that she's done up until this point. It's um, She often tells very simple stories that are subtly complex. And uh, in this film... I mean, her her filmography is filled with several stories of very marginalized Americans and then some stories of of privileged Americans. And they're very politically charged in different ways because of that. And in here we get three different women who are experiencing different struggles. And by placing them in the same film, in the same cinematic space, you implicitly draw connections between them. And then I also think that it's a film, at its core, it's a film about loneliness and by placing three different lonely women in the same film but never having them interact it just makes that more poignant because they may be sharing they're very different but they may be sharing similar loneliness but they never get to to talk about that with other people or with each other or even know each other and i think that that's what the anthology structure subtly does that is interesting you mentioned dern's loneliness because i I'm not sure that I would characterize 
it i i mean i think you're I think you're absolutely right but it's it's weird because it wouldn't be my first characterization of it because her most content moment is when she's on the <laughs> couch with her dog <laughs> i mean i mean right but that's um i think that that's a thing and it's it's all in the details with her and i think it's also you get a lot by comparing the Kristen Stewart character with the Laura Dern character so i think the struggles of the Kristen Stewart character are a lot more explicit because she talks about them, her struggles with her job. Um, and you can imply that those are things that Laura Dern's character in a similar profession in the same town will have experienced when she was younger, but by now she's not as frust- like outwardly frustrated about it because it's just normal to her. And there are all these details, like in the scene where she goes to give her client Fuller a second opinion, she goes to a male lawyer's office, and yes. you see that he has um, a family photo uh, on his desk. And um, it's this like tiny detail that, that tells us that male lawyers are able to have both their career and a family. And um, female lawyers like Laura, she has her affair. And then she gets back to the office and she's like hurriedly cleaning her skirt and her, she has her jumpers untucked. And the whole thing of like having this personal relationship outside of work ruffles her because it's it's something that she's not really allowed to have because the pressures of being a woman and a lawyer are, are big enough already. Oh, wow. I did not. I did not think about that <laughs> comparison. Um, I think I mean. By the way, just to to clarify, no, all my all my Reichart ideas are, are modeled up in my head, and I think that um, that family portrait observation was something that I got reading a piece by my friend Millie Gribben, who wrote her thesis on certain women and old joy, and it's like a really brilliant thesis. Um, and uh, to credit her, we're all credits due. I think that that idea was hers. Again, I've written a whole book about this, so I don't know where any ideas have come from at this point. But I think that was her. Thank you, Millie. We're, we're all standing on shoulders of giants. Yeah, you know, I, I would like to talk about the the, the queer um, the queer readings of this too, because I, mm-hmm. yeah, I. I, I'm not opposed whatsoever uh, of uh, queer readings of this, but I've often, I, at this point, I feel like I'm overthinking it because <laughs> I think especially this uh, this second or, or third time I, I rewatched it, I can, I can no longer remember. Um, mm. I, I think I was almost like trying to divine <laughs> those dynamics uh, from it, you know, whether they were there or not. And it's, it was interesting because I think in my memory, I had imagined this having a slightly, um, I, I knew it was unreciprocated, but I still had uh, interpreted a greater warmth in that, you mm. know, kind of uh, the set piece uh, when they're on the horse together or, or yes. something that felt um, more, you know, maybe not physically intimate, but uh, more spiritual I, I think this time, oddly, I was surprised how short that sequence <laughs> was, mm. which does kind of, you know, maybe the better way to pivot from there is, I mean, what do you make overall of the general emphasis on transportation? I mean, the horse is obviously the outlier, 
but there's so much time spent on cars and the certain the certain process, which I would say is is very representative of her filmmaking as whole as a whole, but this film especially, there is a lot of just the runtime devoted to this very arduous movement. <laughs> mm. You know, I think that you could probably write a whole thesis on Kelly Reichardt and cars because <laughs> they are a motif in her film, um, to say the least. And uh, I feel like they probably hold a certain, this is me projecting kind of, but they probably hold a certain importance to her as well because I know that there was a lot of, there was a, she told me about this and it's in the interview in the book that there was like a, five-year period of her life where she was basically kind of couch surfing in New York but mm. she, it was important to her that she, she had a car and she was able to kind of like go back and forth between states with her dog and go between jobs and cars especially in America because it's so big um are like a it's a massive bonus if you can drive and if you have a car because that gives you a lot of agency and there's a, a huge connection between like women's agency and their cars in her films hence why in Wendy and Lucy it starts with Wendy's car breaking down which is when she starts to lose her agency um, and in certain women there's definitely a connection with that with them too because each woman is each woman is seen in a car. I, I think I feel like in, in Gina's segment she's not driving the car and, and that's probably significant. Um, but mm. I think you see that that most in the Laura segment when her her car, which is kind of her her vehicle of agency, her mode of transportation is invaded by by Fuller. Um, and I, I feel like that there's not as much of a thesis statement I can make uh, at this point about cars and certain women, save for the fact that they seem to be important. And obviously with the rancher, it's her, it's, it's the way in which she's able to reach out to Beth. But again, that, that doesn't go too well. But at least she has kind of the agency to to make that trip and, and to make that leap and to, to try to make a connection, even if it fails. Yeah. I, I think to, to bring it, uh, to bring it back specifically to some of those queer interpretations, I think I, I was specific, specifically thinking about transportation as, you know, um, you know, there's always an emphasis on after, or excuse me, after class, they're going to go in the truck to the diner. Mm. So, so it is this sense that it's as much about that respite than the actual connection. Um, like, you know, uh, Stuart's character whose name is, um, uh, sorry, Elizabeth. Or, yes, yeah. Beth. Her name, yes, uh, is Beth and Lily Gladstone, who we haven't spoken about at all, is, is actually just mm -hmm. the, the rancher. Um, but before we get into those uh, performances. Yeah. I, I think there's something which is not necessarily to say that it, it cannot be a queer, but rather I'm not sure that I believe that Beth is really thinking about the rancher on any scale comparable 
which I, mm. I guess, you know, you can confirm that from their finer, final interaction. But I do, I, I, I do even beyond what's seen on the, in the film, um, I do wonder whether people have been reading too much into that, which is not to squash anyone's <laughs> fan fiction dreams or anything like that. But I, I do think it's worth discussing, given its kind of afterlife. I mean, they, I mean, it's absolutely a completely one-sided thing. Like, I think to Beth, the rancher is just kind of like this blank wall that she can, like, vomit words mm. onto and then leave. Um, but I, I feel like she's, again, and I think it's the thing about the stress she's under at her job, um, the fact that her, her colleagues are, don't seem to be too nice to her because they thought it would be funny to, like, kind of half-trick her into taking this job that's a four hour drive away, um, two nights a week so that she had to like drive through the night, get two hours of sleep and then go into work at 8am the next morning. Um, cause I thought it'd be funny. Um, and she's clearly like, she's a working class girl who like, she says that the nicest job a girl and her family is supposed to get is selling shoes. And she's managed to become a, jo- a lawyer and she really feels this need to prove herself. And um, obviously she's not the centre of the story, but we get this. I mean, obviously Reichardt has this wonderful ability of um, letting us know things about a character in the subtlest of ways, hence why I can say all this about a character who isn't even the main character of the story and we see in a couple scenes. Um, but she, she, you can infer that... Um, she's just so kind of worn down by the stresses of her job um, that she really doesn't have the the attention span to kind of notice that someone's trying to reach out to her. It feels like their dinners together aren't conversations, they're Beth monologuing, basically. And you really don't get the sense that she's even looking at the rancher and she, like, I think once asked the rancher a personal question and doesn't, she seems to be asking it out of courtesy. She doesn't seem to really care about the answer. Whereas the rancher is so, is so invested in their conversations and she listens so intently. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that, like, whether you read uh, a romantic reading or just, like, whatever into, Lily Gladstone's character and her relationship with Beth, um, it's completely unreciprocated on the other side, whether it's friendship or romance or whatever. Sure. There, there's nothing going on the other way. And I think that she she's she's the loneliest character of the three. She's the most physically isolated. And Absolutely. she just she she's just, I think, so lonely that she is projecting onto onto Beth something that she desperately hopes is there but it isn't really so but she is she's just got this like completely open and vulnerable face um as this character which you really need because she doesn't speak a lot a lot of the film um a lot of her first scenes are just her like feeding horses and then there's this like wonderful I think it's just like a two-shot sequence of her like lying in bed watching a TV program and then just kind of staring at the ceiling and yeah. you her face is, is is so open and vulnerable you can read so much into that even though she's not saying a word and you can 
kind of you completely understand her loneliness and the fact that she's been kind of like working on this ranch for weeks and not really talked to anyone. She's got no connection to the outside world. And even the other characters all live in, in a town four hours away and she lives in an even smaller town and in really the middle of nowhere. And in fact, she doesn't even live in town. She lives outside of town. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's just, I mean, everyone who's seen it cannot deny like, how wonderful and like moving her performance is. It's really like one of those big breakout performances that you'll never forget that actor's face again. Uh, Reichert is such a, she's such a generous director to, to speak to her, her facility to with actors. I, I, I think too, there's, there's something about Gladstone that you almost need to give her a time, a time that some might not. Yeah, you know, she is someone who, her her lines and her her way of you know silently communicating is, is so much about accumulation. I, I can't think of many examples of something like that last scene. Not, mm. uh, excuse me, that last scene of her of the of the ranch hands. Um, you know, going into the stable of it not being contextualized as some kind of like triumphant, maybe not triumphant, but, you know, this pleasantly reflective thing. And, you know, obviously in context, she's still deeply isolated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the note that the film ends you on is sort of like life goes on. Like she's she's looking at some people for a moment in their lives but she's very careful not to tell you anything conclusive about them or give them any kind of moment of triumph. She's just trying to show kind of life as it plays out. That might be a, a good place to transition. Before we kind of get to um, plugs and kind of end material, um, I do like to ask uh, guests if they were going to recommend uh, something next to a uh, excuse me something to a listener to go to next, whether it be other films by Reichert or you know maybe a book um, mm -hmm. or <laughs> or anything else. Uh, what would you suggest? Uh, I have three suggestions. Um... One is obvious, another is self-serving, and then the third one is a real suggestion of a film you might like if you like this film. Um, so the obvious one is watch Reichardt's other films. They're all great. Um, I'd say if you haven't seen any of them or this is the only one you've seen, uh, Wendy and Lucy is always a solid starting point, but I, I love all of them. Uh, please watch them. Uh, the second suggestion is obviously read our book. It's called um, Roads to Nowhere, Kelly Reichardt's Broken American Dreams. It's the most expansive book we've done to date. It covers every single one of her films in at least one essay. And then it also is kind of like, it's a 360 look at her process in a way that I don't think has been attempted before. So we've talked to like, 12 of her collaborators and I got to speak with Riker herself in a way that I think was kind of unprecedented given the fact that the lockdown happened while she sure. was sort of like in the whirlwind of the press circuit and I spoke to her twice briefly on that press circuit but then everything in the world shut down she went back home and she went off the press circuit and then she kind of had time to sit down with me for about an hour over Skype and just 
chat about her career in a more calm and relaxed way. And uh, I really treasured that interview. And it's the first chapter of the book. And I think it really gives this um, well-rounded look at her career and how it played out from her perspective. Um, and then if you're a first cow fan, you're going to know everything you need to know from this book, especially because we, we worked with the cinematographer, Chris Blobelt, who's done every one of her films since Meek's Cut-Off, I think. And um, he gave us access to a whole bunch of um, Polaroids that he took behind the, on, behind the scenes on the set. And then he also gave us access to some of like the, the shot lists and the diagrams that they made in preparation for the film. So the book is full of those, and it's this amazing illustration of what everyone's talking about in the book. So we're really pleased with how it turned out. It was a long process to get there. We worked really hard on it, and um, there's a whole bunch of amazing writers in there. And I think it's just kind of like the only companion you need to her films. It's going to give you like the overview you need of why they're great, the themes they explore, and exactly how they're made. Um, and that is at rykartbook.com. And we're also selling uh, Kelly Rykart mugs. So if you want to wake up in the morning and drink tea out of Kelly Rykart's head, we're letting you do that now. Um, you can buy that in a bundle with the book as well. And now that that self-serving stuff is out the way, I'd say, like, if it's a film that you're looking for that is not a Kelly Rykart film but is of the ilk, of um, certain women, I would recommend Lean on Pete by Andrew Haig, which is a film I also love. Um, and we actually also did a book on that film. It's significantly shorter because it's focused on that one film, but it's, I actually wrote an essay in that book and that was the first thing I ever kind of officially wrote about Reichardt. I wrote an essay comparing Lean on Pete as a modern Western to Kelly Reichardt's modern Western, specifically Wendy and Lucy. So I think there's a lot of shared DNA between what he's doing with that film and what she's doing. It's set in kind of like Oregon. I think it's mostly set in Oregon, partly in Wyoming. Um, and just like her films often are not certain women, but most of them. And, um, it has uh, beautiful landscapes with lonely characters who are projecting onto things, which is very Reichardt, um, and it's a great film. And it's also another film that I, it took me three watches to really, really get on its wavelength, even though I liked it the first two times. So it's a film that kind of reveals itself to you, and also a film that, that I think, for me, works best on your laptop on your own because that's the only time. The third time is how I, when I watched it that way, and that's when I really got on its wavelength. So I'd recommend watching that film in that specific way. I, and now we can get to the final segment where we get to uh, do more self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> but first, I would like to thank again uh, my sponsor, Mubi. If you'd like to try a trial of Mubi and uh, watch any of the films that were previously mentioned earlier in the show, you can go to Mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash 
default stage. Thank you uh, to everyone who listened to this episode of Intermission. And finally, before we go, uh, where can people find you these days, Orla? Uh, people can find me at Orla Mango on Twitter. That's O-R-L-A-M-A-N-G-O. And then you can find my writing at Seventh Row, which is at Seventh Row on Twitter and just Seventh Row on the internet in general. And you can find the Rykart book at rykartbook.com and uh, I hope people get to read it and enjoy it. I can be found on Twitter at @snidel. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd. I am on multiple podcasts uh, these days. I am on the main film stage show. Which will actually, coincidentally, be about Kelly Reichert's own first cow. <laughs> with one of Orla's uh, previously mentioned colleagues, Alex Heaney from 7th Row. The next intermission will be um, Antonio Campos's Christine with Cody Ooh. Corral. Uh, thank you again, Orla, for uh, coming on this episode. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will see you on the next intermission. Bye. Bye.